This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here from Core Brain Journal once again, and we have a very, very interesting follow-up. We had a great meeting with uh, Stephen Smith, 221, Core Brain Journal 221, on his relationship with a, a doctor who actually cured his essential tremor with some very innovative technology. And we have with us today Dr. Michael Caplet from New York. Dr. Caplet, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. So what we're going to do is do a brief announcement from our sponsor. But the big thing about Dr. Caplet is he is an innovative thought leader in neurologic surgery at Weill Cornell Medical Brain and Spine Center in New York. This is going to be a very interesting discussion. So let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor. Core Brain Journal is sponsored by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved targeted mind science details. Hey, that's the topic for today. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond guesswork. They also provide multiple training webinars for both the public and medical providers on how to use that great data effectively. Check out their website for references and testing details. And take note today, you can register for a complimentary test drawing. This week, it's for the Great Plains Labs Mycotoxin Mold Toxin Review. And if you go over to their website, the one I'm going to give you in just a second, they have all kinds of downloads and more information on it. That's at greatplainslaboratory.com, CBJ for Core Brain Journal. Why not head on over there? So now we're down to, let me tell you about Dr. Cablet. He is the first doctor in New York to use high-intensity focused ultrasound to relieve a patient's essential tremor. The procedure is part of a new clinical trial testing the use of this technology to eliminate the source of tremors in a completely non-invasive way. And those folks who are out there don't know about essential tremor, in the medical community, it's really considered to be almost, what can you do about it? I mean, there's it's really almost a hopeless case situation. People have been dancing around different ways to make something happen. And that's why this interview is going to be so provocative and so interesting. Dr. Caplet and his neurosurgical team, along with Dr. Levi Chazen from radiology and Dr. Harini Savara from neurology, were able to watch as the patient's tremor diminished visibly during the procedure. So we'll talk more about essential tremor in just a moment, but I think it's really important is that the neuroscience neurosurgical procedures specialize in treatment of movement disorders, get this, including Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, and dystonia using various surgical approaches, including deep brain stimulation. So we're going to hear more about that. So Dr. Caplet, how in the heck did you get over into this in the first place. Were you originally a neurosurgeon by training? Uh, yes. So I have strong interest in both research and patient care. I have um, an MD and a PhD. Uh, my MD is from Cornell, from the institution that I'm at now. And my PhD was from Rockefeller University next door, where I was working on 
developing uh, new molecular methods for uh, manipulating the brain and then ultimately for trying to develop new molecular therapies for uh, various brain diseases. And so then when I did my training in neurosurgery here and then went off to do a fellowship in Canada, I really concentrated on this particular area of neurosurgery which is uh, neurosurgery for movement disorders because we can use various minimally invasive techniques to deliver things almost anywhere in the brain. The most common procedure that we do in my subspecialty, as you mentioned earlier, is called deep brain stimulation where we put electrodes into specific spots within the middle of circuits that regulate movement. And that's kind of the bread and butter of what we do for people. So we've been using that for a couple of decades now to treat patients with Parkinson's disease and essential tremor, as well as dystonia, the three diseases you mentioned earlier. But one of the passions that I have is not only for providing the best possible care to my patients now, but also for trying to work on uh, developing improved therapies for the future for people. And that's one of the reasons why it's great to be at an institution like this and in a department that I'm part of, which really has numerous experts in all different areas of neurological disease and neurosurgery looking at trying to innovate. And so that's what makes it exciting to come to work every day is to be able to help patients today, but also be at the forefront of trying to develop things that will also help patients even more so in the future. So that's been my interest, and I, I spend half my time doing research and half my time treating patients in this particular subspecialty of neurosurgery. And so the way I got into the ultrasound procedure was really through some of these research interests because I had become aware of this device that was developed in Israel that was being used a bit in Europe where they were trying to test whether or not this non-invasive delivery of simple sound waves could actually hit the same targets that we've been going after for years, decades, to treat these disorders, but to hit it non-invasively and try to improve the function of the brain. In this particular case, the targets that we're interested in are, are actually functioning abnormally. So it's this abnormal activity of these uh, particular brain targets that is sort of freezing up the rest of the brain. It's preventing the rest of the brain from functioning properly. So with the traditional procedure of brain stimulation, you can put an electrode in and send little electrical pulses to these targets and improve tremor or improve other symptoms like, you know, symptoms of Parkinson's, for example, stiffness and freezing and things. And so that is very effective for a lot of patients. But still, the idea of being able to do these things non-invasively without leaving an electrode in the brain, without leaving a battery in the chest that powers the whole thing, without the risks of that, of, you know, bleeding and strokes and, and infection and things, which are rare, but they still happen. By eliminating all of that, you have the potential ability to give patients the same therapy or the same degree of improvement, but without the need to actually open up their head without leaving anything inside their body, which is obviously very exciting and almost at the level of science fiction. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that they did in, you know, Star Trek, where they would run something over your head and all of a sudden you were better. I mean, it's kind of, you know, not quite that, but it's pretty close to it. Hmm. So even when you understand how all of this works, even when you understand who to apply it to and how to do it properly, it's still quite remarkable that we've reached a point that we can do things like this. And so that's what really excited me about this whole deal and the prospect of moving towards these less invasive things. And that's where a lot of my research had been for decades was trying to use 
either less invasive methods or more sort of what we call biologically targeted methods than just using electrical stimulation, as effective as that is, I pioneered an area of research called gene therapy, for example, where I was the first person to put genes into you know patients' brains for things like Parkinson's disease, et cetera. And almost 30 years ago, I developed the techniques in my laboratory to do that that are used in most neuroscience labs around the world now. So we've had this kind of history of innovation, but the idea that we can start to expand and use, the really interesting part about this is we can use all of the expertise that we've developed over many decades as surgeons to understand who the right patients are for these types of therapies, to understand the targets in the brain that you want to go after, and to understand what problems might occur from influencing nearby structures that you don't want to hit. All of that knowledge is something that's second nature to us when we would put these implants in over the years. And so now we kind of take that knowledge, but apply it to this less invasive approach, which is exactly where people want to go. So that's that's how I really got interested in this and why it excited me so much. Well, you know what's so interesting, just as you're talking about it and trying to stand with you by the table that you're working on with, with the patient and, and thinking about the nuances of it, I know a little bit about brain, not not uh, enough to really ask you a completely intelligent question, but I think our listeners would appreciate your remarks on the following uh, question, and that is, how do you actually differentiate? What is the tool that you use, and how does your team actually work with you in the process to identify what those safe parameters are when you're going in to use this highly focused ultrasound technology? Right. No, that's a great question. Let me take a step back for a second in order to answer that question to explain a bit about how the technology works, because I think then it'll be easier to understand the answer Mm -hmm. to that very important question. So the idea behind the focused ultrasound is that we have this helmet that we lower over the patient's head in the MRI suite. So they're not in the operating room. They're in an MRI machine, the same way you would, same MRI that you would use for any MRI imaging of the brain. And then we lower over the head this helmet that has a thousand sources of ultrasound in it, and they're all pointing at a single spot. And so each beam of ultrasound that goes through the skull and through the brain is actually very safe as it goes through the tissue. It is not enough energy to really damage the tissue on its own. But at the point at which those thousand beams of ultrasound converge, where they all meet, you're adding up the energy of a thousand beams of ultrasound at that spot. And so now you're delivering a very high amount of energy to the spot that you're interested in eliminating, essentially, so that you can free up the rest of the brain. So you can get a very targeted, very focused lesion or destruction of these abnormal areas of the brain without affecting the surrounding structures, at least in theory. That's the idea behind it. It's very analogous to when we were children. Many of us remember using a a magnifying glass and focusing on a sunny day the magnifying glass on like a leaf or a piece of paper, and you could burn a hole in it, right? Yes. And the reason you could burn a hole in that leaf or that piece of paper was because the energy from the sun, all of the rays of sunlight coming down, was fairly safe to us and our skin, et cetera, at least in the short term. I'm not talking about, you know, skin cancer or things, but you wouldn't get burned from the sun immediately. But if you had the magnifying glass, you could focus a large number of those beams of sunlight onto that single spot. That's what the magnifying glass was doing. And now you would deliver a huge amount of energy only to that one spot on the leaf or the piece of paper, because that's where all those beams of sunlight would converge and add up and burn a spot 
into the leaf or the piece of paper. It's the same thing that we're doing with this ultrasound in the brain. And so the way we sort of uh, target it well and the parameters that we adjust to optimize our targeting and avoid hitting nearby things that could cause problems, which was the question that you asked, the way we do that is we start out at first with a very low level of energy. And the MR machine can actually measure the temperature inside of any piece of tissue. Um, it's called MR thermometry. It's been around for a long time. It's not unique to this ultrasound machine. What was unique to this ultrasound machine was they married this array of ultrasound sources in this helmet to target a specific spot. They married that to this MR thermometry technique where you can measure temperature inside the tissue. Mm. So while we are delivering the energy of the ultrasound, we are simultaneously measuring the rise in temperature of the tissue. Wow. So if body temperature is at 37 degrees uh, Celsius, which is 98.6 Fahrenheit, body temperature at 37 degrees Celsius, as we deliver the energy, we will see it rise up to, let's say, 42 degrees or 44 degrees Celsius, and we will know we are heating that area. And this can give you a map, a heat map, of where you've heated the tissue. So you can set different thresholds on the machine and say, okay, now I want to see what area of tissue was heated up to 48 degrees or what area was heated up to 44 degrees, and you'll see different shapes and sizes around the center point that you're targeting. And you don't really get permanent changes in the brain until you reach somewhere around 50 degrees or so Celsius. So when we heat the tissue in that kind of 10 degree range between 40 and 50 degrees, which is above normal temperature, but below the temperature that causes any permanent change, that allows us to see what exactly we're heating. Are we heating the exact target that we want? Is it bleeding out? beyond where we want it to be? And what does it look like? Is it a perfectly round shape? Is it shaped more like a triangle or like a sausage? And those things can vary from patient to patient based on factors that we don't even fully understand, like the shape of the head or how thick the skull is, etc. But we don't need to fully understand it because we can see exactly what's happening in that patient before we make anything permanent. And then adjust accordingly. We can move it by a fraction of a millimeter in any direction we want or a millimeter or more. Usually we don't need to move it that much. But we can move it in any direction we want. And we can even adjust. We can take away some of the ultrasound sources. If it looks like it's shaped in a funny way, we can actually eliminate some of those sources so they're not being used anymore to try to smooth it out. So there's a lot of parameters we can adjust during that phase when we are not doing anything permanent, but we're just testing it. And once we hit the right spot and we're happy with the way it looks, we can then deliver increased amounts of energy. We can slowly increase the amount of energy. And so it takes several rounds and it takes several hours to do this properly and safely. But as a result of that, once we get to that sort of borderline temperature before it's fully permanent, we will usually start to see about a 50% noticeable improvement in the patient's tremor when they go to write something or, or make spirals or draw lines, etc. And if we see that 50% improvement and they're not having any side effects that we're concerned about that could suggest we're affecting nearby structures, then we increase further the amount of energy until we reach a temperature that makes it permanent, usually between 55 and 60 degrees Celsius. So after we do that a couple of times, we make it permanent, and then we can take pictures to actually see what's been destroyed. You can see it immediately. So usually our goal is to try to get the tremor 
pretty much 100% resolved, we usually achieve that. Sometimes we only achieve maybe 80 or 85% improvement, but usually we, receive, we, we get a dramatic improvement no matter what. And obviously, we're trying to avoid any side effects. If we start to see anything, we back off and we either move away or we finish, depending on what's going on. So that is the way we try to optimize this to get the best outcome while trying to limit any side effects of off-target or nearby eating. Well, you know, it's so interesting because you're just thinking about that situation and you're thinking about the team. And what's interesting to me, and if you could just amplify on this one point a little bit, because uh, none of us have been there with you in this kind of interesting circumstance, so the person is able within the MRI and within this uh, cap, able to do motion and you can then ask them to do certain things while this procedure is going on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the more interesting things about my specialty of neurosurgery is that the vast majority of patients that I operate on, even with traditional surgery like brain stimulation surgery, are awake because we really need their feedback and we need to interact with them to see how they're responding for good or bad so that we can be sure of what we're doing. Even if we exquisitely understand the anatomy involved and we know in our mind what structures are near what, and if we get a great preoperative MRI image and get perfect planning, there are always still idiosyncrasies because the areas that we're talking about are incredibly small and there's incredibly little room for error. The separation between the areas that we have to affect and the areas that we don't want to affect are usually fractions of a millimeter. So if you're too aggressive, then you could potentially have uh, permanent side effects that you don't want that could affect speaking or, or sensation or, or movement, etc. On the other hand, if you're not aggressive enough, if, if you're too conservative, then you won't get a good outcome in the patient. And that's part of what our job is, obviously, is to balance those competing needs about being aggressive enough to help the patient, but conservative enough not to hurt them and balance those competing needs. And a big part of that is the patient's interaction with us during the procedure. And that's always been true, even when we open up the skull and invade the brain to put things in, but it's certainly true with this non-invasive procedure. So even though this takes a few hours in the MRI room, they're not actually in the magnet itself. Their head isn't slid into that sort of tube, that the classic MRI tube, for two or three hours. They'll be in there for, let's say, 10 or 15 minutes at a time, and then we slide them out and we do all this testing that we talked about, and then we slide them back in and do another five or 10 minutes and slide them out again and test them again. So there's a, a constant interaction and feedback where the patient is doing things that we ask them to do. They're telling us what they're feeling for good or bad, and we're adjusting accordingly to try to get them the best and safest result. So interesting. Now, what are you doing, Dr. Kaplan, in that situation? Are you looking through a scope? Are you on a TV screen? And what are your other two partners that you were uh, crediting with some of the help on the situation? What are the rest of your team doing so that a person can anticipate what's going on in that entire scenario? Right. So there is, there's a big team there. In addition to the physicians that you mentioned, there's also engineers from the company making sure that the machine is not, is running effectively and not having a problem. There's technicians running the MRI machine. It said there's nurses there, there's an anesthesiologist there just in case, even though the patients are awake and we, we don't sedate them for this procedure. So there's a huge team sitting in the control room outside the MRI watching this, etc. What I'm doing is obviously running the machine itself, to, you know, starting the ultrasound when we need it, stopping it, setting the parameters and making all the final decisions, as well as evaluating the patient. The neurologist also helps evaluate the patients before and after the procedure and sometimes during the procedure. 
And the radiologist, Dr. Chazen, who's been my partner in this, is really helping with all aspects of the procedure, but primarily with the analysis of the images that we're seeing to help both optimize the quality of the images so that during the procedure, so we can see exactly what we're doing to the best of our ability, and also helping me to really uh, confirm that we feel like we're in the right spot relative to what we've done before. He also does some really interesting preoperative analyses that is very cutting edge, and we recently published a paper on this, where instead of just looking at the MRI the traditional way, he can actually map out connections in the brain. So we can look and highlight specific circuitry, specific connections, just like wires that are running through your house. We can find those wires or those circuits that are running through the brain and running through the spot that we're interested in targeting. And then we can, through a separate color coding, specifically identify those connections nearby that control movement and speech or those connections that control sensation and map that out and color code them. He does all that in advance, and we use that during the procedure to give us an idea of whether or not we're hitting the spot that we want to hit and figuring out how much room we have before we could potentially hit those other color-coded circuits that we don't want to hit. So everybody in the team is really performing their particular expertise, whether it's uh, radiology and imaging, whether it's neurology and the clinical exams, anesthesiology, keeping the patient safe and making sure that their blood pressure is okay and that they're not having any breathing problems, nursing, engineering, etc. They're all there during the procedure and we're all kind of interacting throughout. And my job is really to be the quarterback sort of controlling all of this and making the final decisions, of course. So amazing. Now, listen, I forgot to tell you this because we were so hasty in getting together. We're going to take a very quick break for you and me. It's only going to be 10, 15 seconds, but we got to put a, a mid-roll sponsorship in here. And I'm going to ask you a question when we get back, which I think is really right on the tip of everybody's mind. And that is, we'd like to ask you, Dr. Kaplan, give us a couple of examples of some dramatic changes that you've seen so that people can get an idea of kind of the things that you would do. One of the things I'm particularly interested in, because just in getting up for this, many people have been asking me about Parkinson's, for example. And so we're going to ask about some of those other disorders and any specific particular kind of awe-inspiring ones that you've seen, which were quite dramatic. So we're going to take a Moment of silence, you and I, and then we'll be back for that question in just a second. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot. They get it every time. 
In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. Yeah, that's Core Brain Journal CBJ. Well, thanks for your patience on that break, Dr. Kaplan. I should have warned you in advance. I apologize, but there, there are really two questions there. One is, I think it's always fun to hear the results for people who've made it. And I think, you know, the person, uh, Mr. Smith, who was the golfer, just a dramatically interesting discussion at Core Brain Journal 221. But I would like to hear any others you have. And then the second question right behind that, is the controversy, you know, what I, I don't know anything about, I know just a little bit about it, and that is, it sounds controversial on the Parkinsonism dystonia side. I'd like to hear a little bit of comment about that as well, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Well, with regard to dramatic stories, I mean, obviously, one of the nice things about doing this is that there's such immediate feedback, and tremor is such a an obvious symptom that you know pretty quickly that you've done something useful for the patient and you see that right away. So pretty much every patient is often amazed when we hit the right spot at how quickly their tremor is better. And most remember, most of these people with essential tremor have been dealing this for a long time. Essential tremor is different than Parkinson's disease, for example, and a lot of people don't appreciate it. If you see somebody who has a tremor, a lot of people will just assume they have Parkinson's disease, may not even ask them about it because they don't want to say anything. But essential tremor is actually five times more common than Parkinson's disease, and yet most people outside the medical community have not heard of it. Because Parkinson's disease, rather, obviously is a bit more debilitating to people in terms of the overall effect on their life, especially earlier in the disease, and because there have been many high-profile individuals in the public eye with Parkinson's disease who have popularized it in a way that I think that the public is quite familiar with many of the symptoms. But essential tremor is actually much more common, and it is pretty much an isolated tremor. So when you're sitting there not moving, it's very difficult to tell for most essential tremor patients that there's something wrong. But when they go to move, all of a sudden they have very bad control of their arm or their leg, and they start tremoring like crazy. And when it gets bad enough, they're unable to drink with their dominant hand, and often it can affect both sides. So then it can be a problem even using two hands to simply drink from a cup or to write with a pen or to use a keyboard to type. And nowadays, of course, we're so dependent on the digital world that typing is no longer a luxury. It's a part of everyday life, whether mm-hmm. it's on a computer or on a phone, etc. So they have great difficulty with all of those normal activities that we take for granted. And this can go on and get worse over time for decades. It also, in many patients, probably more than half, it is familial. So many patients have family members, parents, siblings, etc., who have had the disease. We don't, there's no specific gene that we have identified that causes this. It's not inherited the same way cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs disease is, where we know what the genetic abnormality is, but we do know that it runs in families for the majority of patients, and we just don't know why. So as a result, it causes a lot of stress. And then that's the other problem, is that stress and being tired will exacerbate any tremor. So when someone has to go out and now perform activities at work, or social circumstances, etc. the stress of knowing that the tremor is going to come out only makes the tremor worse, so it's very hard to control. So it really causes these major problems in quality of life, and as you age, it can get much worse. And so 
you can really see these amazingly dramatic improvements in people who have been unable to do certain things for 10 or 12 years or more, some cases, many decades. So I've had, you know, most of our patients have great difficulty just holding a cup with their so-called dominant hand. You know, if you're right-handed, you drink with your right hand. Most of my patients can't do that. So once we get this going, they're lying upside down on the MRI table. And when I know their tremor is better, I will often ask them to take a cup of water and drink. And this is upside down. And they'll look at me like I'm insane. And they'll say, <laughs> I can't do that. I can't hold the cup. I, you know, I'll, I'll spill it all over myself. Yeah. And I say, just try it. And they'll take the cup and then they'll hesitantly bring it closer. And then as they get closer and closer to their face and their body, and they notice that it's not tremoring, They'll start to bring it closer and closer, and then all of a sudden they'll bring it to their lips, and they're able to drink upside, lying upside down, which is not easy for any of us, mm. where they weren't even able to hold a cup for 10 or 15 years before Oh, man, that's unbelievable. Believable. And, I, you know, I've got all these stories of people who use their hands for a living. I have an artist who's done some media who's really been terrific, and she does some amazing artwork and has been able to now do things since the procedure that she was unable to do before. And she actually made me a couple of pieces of her art, which is fantastic. I've had people who were surgical assistants in surgery who could who were having a hard time doing what they needed to do because their hands would shake, and now it's better, and they can go back to their job. And same thing with others, you know, dentists and engineers and, and others. I've had several of those types of patients, all of whom can now... Uh, perform their work in a way that they just couldn't before. And then, of course, like Steve, we've had several golfers, interestingly. So, I mean, that fine work is amazing. Now, say a couple words before we wind up. I know both of us have to go, but say a couple words about that toll Parkinson treatment. Do you do it? And is it what's your overall thought about it, the controversy and uh, applicability, that sort of thing? So we have started a trial for Parkinson's disease. It is a very different disease. I should point out that the treatment for essential tremor is no longer experimental. It was actually approved by the FDA for general use about a year and a half ago. It's been taking a while for Medicare and the insurance companies to agree to cover it, and that's often true with new technologies. But now that's starting to change as well, so we're seeing a real uptick in the number of patients who want this procedure because up until recently we could only treat patients who were paying out of pocket for the procedure, but it is approved. But for Parkinson's disease, it's considered experimental still. And Parkinson's is not just about tremor. Parkinson's is often, for most patients, the more debilitating symptoms are often stiffness and freezing, difficulty moving, etc. And often on both sides. Right now, we're only approved to be able to do this procedure on one side of the brain for tremor patients. Well, if you're fine until you go to move and then your problem is holding a cup, writing with your hand, etc., then if we only treat one side of the brain to treat your so-called dominant arm, that's going to really dramatically change your quality of life if the only problem is difficulty controlling that arm when you do uh, those types of tasks. But if you're stiff and, and have difficulty moving on both sides of your body, and if you have complications of medicines that many Parkinson's patients have where they can't stop moving, et cetera, or their medicines just don't work as well, and that's affecting both sides, then it's a little bit more difficult if you can only treat one side. It's a little more difficult to see whether or not that's going to help the same number of patients that this seems to help where most essential tremor patients will have real benefit if you only even treat one side, even if they still have problems on the other side. So figuring out how this will help Parkinson's disease, if it will at all, 
and whether we can safely do this on both sides of the brain, which is a question that has to be answered, those are still things that are unknown and that we have to figure out. So the study that's going on right now, and we treated the first patient in the world in this particular study that just started, is to treat a different spot in the brain that's not responsible for tremor, it's responsible for all the other symptoms of Parkinson's, the stiffness and the freezing, etc., as well as for some of the side effects of the medicines. And so we're trying to eliminate that spot using the ultrasound, but we can only do it on one side. So finding the right patient is the real challenge of this study. And I think that there is some real promise from some pilot patients that were treated elsewhere to suggest that this could really help Parkinson's patients, particularly those who might not be great candidates for invasive surgery. But that's what we're studying right now. So that's not something that's generally available, but if there are patients who have complications of medicines where they can't stop moving, so-called dyskinesia, or where the medicines are just not lasting long enough and it's kind of random how the medicines are working. These are the problems that many patients with Parkinson's have between five and 10 years into their disease. If patients are having those problems and they want to be considered for the study, but they're otherwise in good shape, then that is something that we're actively recruiting for and something that we would love to talk to anybody about who might be interested in. Because I still think that there is some real promise to this, even for something like Parkinson's. Now, I should expand that and and say that there's another thing that we're doing, not yet in patients, but we're working on this in our laboratory, that there's a whole other approach to using this technology that's completely different than everything I just said. Instead of burning and destroying areas of the brain that are functioning abnormally, which has a real purpose, but is obviously limited. There's only certain areas of the brain you can take out safely Mm -hmm. and effectively. What we're trying to do is actually use this technology to open up the so-called blood-brain barrier, which are, you know, the the blood vessels in the brain do not let things freely move from your bloodstream into your brain, and that's on purpose. Every time you get a virus or a bacterial infection or something else, you don't want it all just getting into your brain. So the brain has very specialized systems to prevent things from getting into the brain except the absolute nutrients that you need to survive. But what that does is it really limits our ability to deliver things into the brain that might be beneficial from the bloodstream because of that barrier that is naturally occurring during development to protect our brain. So what we can do with this ultrasound by using it a slightly different way is we can actually pick a spot in the brain that we want to try to improve or deliver something to And then we can use this ultrasound in a different way to open up temporarily the so-called blood-brain barrier for like an hour or a couple of hours, et cetera. And then it it heals itself and it closes up again. But during that brief period, we can inject things into the bloodstream that can go to the brain and actually get through this temporarily opened barrier in the spot that we pick. And so that has real potential to try to deliver things like gene therapies, antibodies, even stem cells by a simple injection into your bloodstream in the office, followed by this ultrasound procedure. And so it raises the possibility, not simply of eliminating abnormally active areas, but actually repairing or improving the healing potential in a whole host of areas that we couldn't target before. And so that opens it up not only for novel therapies for Parkinson's, which we're testing in our laboratory, but for Alzheimer's disease, which we're testing in our laboratory, for brain tumors to try to deliver things into the normal brain to try to seek out and kill those tumor cells that are in the normal brain. And so we're working on all of these things. And there are other groups doing some of this as well. But this is the kind of thing that will massively expand the opportunities of this approach to try to fix 
the brain for a whole host of neurological and even psychiatric diseases like depression and addiction, etc. Dr. Kaplett, thank you so much for taking a little more time with us. I know you've got to go. We can't tell you how much we really appreciate your sharing these very, very interesting dynamic changes that are taking place where we can actually modify almost a molecular level what's going on in brain. It's just amazing. So thank you so much. We'll have uh, links for your material in the show notes so we don't need to have you tell us. And we'll just put it right there, and we're really looking forward. I, I don't want to keep you longer. I just want to say thank you very much from all of us for all you're doing out there. It's great work. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.